1: Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dimitri Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Jonathan Willis. Jonathan, for the, this is the first time you and I have ever met up in person, recorded face-to-face, which is amazing considering I lost track of how many times you've been on the show, but it's been at least 15 to 20 times, so the first time I ask you while well, looking squarely into your eyes. How's it going, man? It's going really good. It's uh it's
0: nice to put a face to the voice on the on the telephone. I, it's uh it's a bizarre experience. I I mean, I I only know you as a voice in my ears, so.
1: Yeah. You yeah, know, it's it's good. Hopefully, hopefully it lives up to the hype. Hopefully, it's uh it's going to be good. I mean, I'm I'm excited. So many people are in town here. We've already talked about some of our experiences off the air, but it really these events and now that it's in it's in Vancouver, it's in my hometown. it, it it feels awesome that like the entire hockey world is kind of congregating into one place like this and there's gonna be so much many cool networking experiences and meeting people and putting faces to names uh that you only really know from online and so um I did a show yesterday which went up this morning on Thursday morning, um, which was like a mock draft that I did with Cam Robinson and Ufe Bodine. and people can go check that out if they haven't already. But I know not everyone is fully invested in the draft or doesn't necessarily care that much about her. Maybe their favorite team doesn't have a high pick. So you and I are going to focus more on some of the transactions we've seen. We're going to focus on maybe stuff to watch over the coming days in terms of the higher leverage teams we've identified that either have made moves already or are names to watch because it feels like they're about to get frisky.
0: Well, and the beautiful thing about it is if we're wrong, people will find out right away.
1: (laughs) They won't have time to forget what we were wrong about. (laughs) It's true. And, and I mean, it's, it's a tricky time for, uh, for the evaluation and analysis game because it feels like there are so many moving pieces and you never know when the next big trade is going to happen. And so it's, it's an, obviously an exciting time, but it also puts the shelf life on some of these uh, shows and tweets and, and articles of ours to uh, to pretty minimal.
0: Yeah. And it's going to, uh, one, one of those moving pieces is obviously the salary cap. So we're in the same boat as NHL GMs where we don't know what the number is going to be. And we have to kind of make things up on the fly and, and hope we're right. What, a what a what
1: a Mickey Mouse league sometimes this NHL is. I mean, the fact that we still don't know, it sounds like we're going to find out by Saturday, I guess, but that's really kind of putting GMs in a pretty precarious position in terms of like, you kind of go about it thinking it's going to be one thing. I think there were times where people thought it might be as close to as, as possibly 83 million for next season. And then now we're finding it's probably going to be under 82 and, and we'll see how low it drops. But for some of these teams that are pretty up against it, like that does make a massive difference and we're going to see. I think it's going to lead to a lot of movement because if it is as low as we think it could be, all of a sudden there's going to be certain teams out there that are going to have to shed pieces that they might not have otherwise, just because they have to do that to, to become uh, cap compliant.
0: Yeah. It's uh, it's going to be very interesting. And, and I think we're going to see a lot of movement that we would not otherwise have done. I, I think most NHL GMs go into the summer th- aiming for you know having a conservative estimate of the cap and coming in you know a million lower a million and a half lower and so it, it won't catch those guys in so much trouble but if you're a team that you know you look at tampa bay or bay tamp you look at winnipeg you look at toronto where you need every dime
1: it's oh it's, it's going to be scary and it's going to force you
0: to do some things you otherwise would not
1: well, that, and that's when the league is at its best. Yes. Uh, so I'm looking, I mean, it's bad for the, uh, for the owners and the GMs, but for us, it's, uh, it's going to be fun. So, okay. So I've highlighted a number of teams here that either are interesting for a variety of reasons. They're kind of at a crossroads point organizationally, they're either poised to make moves or they already have. And let's start off with the jets because I just have this one big question here written. It's like, how did they back themselves into this corner? I think they're the latest example of how fleeting success in this league can be because I don't necessarily want to be writing their obituary right now and thinking it's going to take another decade for them to win another playoff series. But if we were having this conversation this time last year, I think everyone was universally very optimistic. It took them a while to get here, but they have this amazing regular season. They make it all the way to the conference finals. They have all these young pieces. We figured they're going to get better and are going to grow together. And then all of a sudden now for a variety of reasons, um, the opinion on them has flipped and and for, for good reason in terms of the optimism heading into the future, both in terms of just how poor and underwhelming their, this past season was for them, but also what their roster is going to look like if they have to keep shedding pieces here and making moves. And, and so I, I, I don't know, how do they get here and what do they do? moving forward to try and remedy the situation and get back on the train tracks.
0: Well they're in that very difficult situation where you have half the team that is part of an you know an older core, not that the Winnipeg Jets older core won anything, right. but but they have, you know, Blake Wheeler, Dustin Bufflin, these are real players and they're being paid like real players. But there's a, a massive age gap between them and this crop of young RFAs coming up. And I think it's a tricky thing for any NHL GM to manage that gap, to, uh, to transition from your older players while keeping them in place to support your younger players, and, and figuring out who's going to age out well and who's going to age out poorly. And Winnipeg, this is the year where everything hits the fan, where they have so many RFAs, and they still have these big money older player deals. And, and trying to negotiate that is, is very, very tricky. I, you know, their their opening move with Jacob Truba does not inspire confidence. I know they were forced into it. They had some bad things going on. Oh, but even so, don't give them <laughs> that. that
1: they, they were they weren't forced into anything. No team in this league is ever forced into anything. They that was their own doing. They they dug their own grave there. Well, and and the problem
0: is, I mean, you look at the trade return. Are they any worse off if they flip them at the trade deadline as a rental? I don't think they are. For the, I, I love the trade for the Rangers because it's a zero risk move. If you won't sign with New York, well, oh, you know, we'll rent them out to you and we'll get back exactly what we gave, maybe even a little bit more. Yep. So you look at that, it doesn't inspire confidence, and you kind of listen to the rumor mill. And, it, you know, if, if I'm shedding salary in Winnipeg, Nikolai Ehlers is nowhere near the top of my salary shedding list. And, I, I will see what they do, but if that's the road they go down, you kind of go, no, if you're, if you're going to shed money, start here, here, and here. Don't start with the one guy who's really undervalued and uh, is definitely going to bounce back
1: next year. I mean, they fumbled. The the reason why I don't feel bad for them. And I critique them for the Jacob Truba trade was it did really feel like it was kind of by their own doing just from the start, right? Like he comes into the league, Pairing him with guys like Mark Stewart. They're they're not putting him in a position to succeed. And then all of a sudden, he comes up after his ELC, and they're haggling over what they want to do with him. They wind up kind of flexing their uh, financial leverage to make him take this bridge deal that is obviously going to wind up paying him less than he's probably worth. And so they burned bridges there, and we kind of knew this day was coming. And then for a team that considers itself a contender, I imagine heading into next season, I don't think they want to take such a step backwards that they're going to be back to the rebuilding phase. Losing a guy like this for what they got, as you're right, as you said, at the deadline, if the season doesn't go the way they wanted, I find it hard to believe they couldn't get a back half first round pick from someone and a project slash AHL defenseman. Like I, I, the whole Neil Neil Pionk thing and some of the comments that came out from Kevin Shea it's like, why did you like him? What What does he do well? He competes. He He competes hard. That like That's a red flag that if you can't identify any actual skills and compete level is what you're talking about, like, that's pretty dicey on my end. So, I don't feel bad for them for that and then they kind of forced themselves into this position. It's not like they couldn't foresee the scenario where Patrick Lyon and Kyle Connor were going to score a bunch of goals and warrant higher salaries and they still chose to give Brian Little his extension. They chose to go out and spend a bunch of money on Dmitry Kulikov and free agency. So, it was just kind of a lack of planning and foresight on their end. And, and that's why I think ultimately Kevin off and the Jets organization deserves as much flack as they're getting from people because it's not just a matter of, oh, we have too many good young players. We can't afford them all. it's You probably could have afforded them all if you played your cards better. Well, and I, I think the the Truba
0: in particular, because how long have the rumors been going around that Truba wants out of Winnipeg that he's not gonna sign a long term extension? Last summer they certainly knew about it. They probably knew about it well before last summer, to be honest. And you look at that and and the the contrast that I come up with is with what happened with Matt Duchesne in Colorado, because Joe Sackick has been lauded for being patient with Matt Duchesne for waiting till he got the fit and and that's it's it's what he did, but it's what Winnipeg didn't do with their time. Because if Winnipeg had been really pushing for the last year and a half to get the best possible long-term fit for Jacob Truba, you would think that they would have got a lot more than they ended up with. It seems like they kind of knew this was coming, but they put it off, put it off, put it off, and then at the last minute, even though they had a year and a half or two years or however long it was to prepare, they traded him to you know one of the handful of teams he was willing to sign with and got the the price they get if he didn't sign anywhere so you know shovel Day offs a guy who gets credit for a lot of patients I don't know that that's actually the case to me it looks more like procrastination
1: it does it definitely does he uh, he had an exam coming up here this summer <laughs> and he did not prepare he waited till the last possible day to open that book um, and then we get into this situation so okay they realize we're not going to have Jacob Truba back. Let's get whatever we can for him. That's fine. I definitely think the return was very underwhelming and they could have just waited and gotten it later on, but you move Jacob Truba, you acknowledge that he's not part of your future solution. Then all of a sudden they're freaking out this whole Tyler Tyler Myers sweepstakes <laughs> with, you know, here locally in Vancouver, they've been heavily rumored and linked to him in free agency. It's like, he's looking for seven years, 7 million per. I'm like, are we talking about the same t- Tyler Myers? And like, it's like he won the Calder Trophy. It's like, how long ago was, are we still citing that as something, an accomplishment of his? You know, um, those
0: six foot seven guys take a while to yeah. develop. Yeah, he's you, still right?
1: six foot seven. He has not shrunk yet in, <laughs> into his late 20s. And so they're freaking out about potentially losing him to kind of go along with losing Truba. And then all of a sudden, if you're like missing two top four defensemen there, it feels like they are going to, what you alluded to, cover one of those holes by creating a bigger hole up front, trading Nikolai Ehlers for a defenseman. And if I'm another GM, You know, I constantly say, know who you're playing against, know who you're you're playing cards against, and always just target the fish. Always just pick out which GMs and just keep calling them. And it feels like Kevin Sheffield Dayoff right now is primed to be taken advantage of from that perspective of there's a certain desperation in the air, and they clearly... There's been so many rumblings that you feel like there's some substance to it. It's not just sort of media generated rumors that Nikolai Ehlers probably isn't long for Winnipeg. And after a down season, for them to be selling low on him to get a defenseman to make up for these other mistakes they've made. It's it really is like the definition of patching up one hole by creating a significantly bigger one and worrying about it later. And and I'm I'm fascinated to see how it plays out, but I, I figure out I figure it probably will not be Uh, a positive development for the Jets.
0: Yeah, well, and the the other option the Jets have, other than trading a forward, because, I mean... to me, if I look at Winnipeg's roster, it makes way more sense to trade Kyle Connor than Nikolai Ehlers because you've got to think of these guys as stocks that go up and down. There's a true underlying value, the fundamentals, and then there's everything else that's, that's driven. And, and Ehlers is a guy who's worth more than he appears to be worth right now. And Connor's a guy who's, you know, they're both very good players, don't get me wrong. But Connor to me is a guy you can sell and, and maybe get more than that true underlying talent. But the other option they have, other than making a trade, I mean, they could just go with an unbalanced D, strong forwards. There's an argument for that. But the other thing they could do is sign Myers, which, you know, is its own minefield. Wow. I didn't <laughs> even consider that as an option, but you're right. That
1: is something they could do. And, and well, in,
0: I remember um, I remember reading a story about Bob Goodenow back in the day before the salary cap, um, when uh, the CBA negotiations were contentious in, like, the early 90s. And, and supposedly, the story that I read... Uh, he loved the idea of, of, of unrestricted free agency being really limited because it guaranteed there'd be a shallow, shallow market every year on July 1, and all of those guys would get massively overpaid. And it was a way to inject money in the system while seemingly doing teams a favor by limiting player movement. And I think we've seen, I mean, it doesn't work the same under a cap system, but the basic, uh, the basic function's still there. You look at Tyler Myers. I mean, if you need a defenseman, a right-shot defenseman, Tyler Myers might be your best option in free agency, but that doesn't mean you need to sign him. Maybe you don't sign a free agent and you just say, you know what? We're going to live with this hole because he's going to get paid way too much money.
1: He is. I would definitely let someone else foot that bill. Um, And, you know, from Nikolai Euler's perspective, and and I think that's a great point that you brought up there that isn't being talked about enough. It's, You have this guy locked up now, what, he's making $6 per for his age 24 to 29 seasons, which is like the absolute meat and apex of his prime, and he had a down season. He missed, I believe, 20 games with injuries. He once again didn't perform up to people's expectations in the playoffs, albeit a six-game sample, (laughs) and so people are freaking out and wondering whether he's overpaid, whether he is expendable, and it just blows my mind, because when you watch this guy play, he is in complete command of the neutral zone. He's one of the best transition players I've seen in today's game. He's like your perfect winger in the modern NHL in terms of getting the puck from point A to point B with possession. He's a shot generation monster. He had a down season this season, but it really does feel like we'll see what a potential return for him is. But I can't imagine you'd get actual fair value for what he is as a talent and what he'll probably be doing next season in whatever destination he's in. Well, the other thing is style, Like, you mentioned... A lot about what he is
0: stylistically the other thing about him that that maybe gets undersold is he's kind of a chaos forward in the way he generates his offense in the offensive zone like he's all over he moves he's he moves a ton and and that's really valuable a lot of teams really like that but you know a lot of teams also kind of get stuck on the whole north south meat potatoes and they don't like that kind of chaos even from their own guy even when it's generating right. stuff and so Ehlers to me I mean, I have all the time in the world for him, but I think you have to be a team that's open to, you know, letting him be creative, letting him do his thing, and uh, I, I wonder a little bit if that hurt, I, I don't think it'll hurt the market for him much, because teams are smart enough to realize he's signed through his prime years, you've cost certainty, I mean, you look at what free agents are getting, six million bucks for that player, If even if he's a 65 point guy, and he's, I'm very confident he's going to be more than that, yep. That's that's good value. That's great well, value.
1: Well, and and just in terms of the 5-on-5 effect and that chaos leading to him drawing just an insane amount of yes. penalties all the time. Yes. And, um, you know, we'll talk more about the Hurricanes here as a high-leverage team for us that we've identified, but they've been linked to him, and, and they are, like, stylistically in terms of that pace they want to play at, dominating the neutral zone, being one of the better 5-on-5 teams in the league. He Such checks a great fit. so many buckets there for them and is kind of, like, represents that um, – talent infusion for them without necessarily paying an absolute premium where you can step right in so, you know they're gonna pay more for them I imagine than what they paid for Nino Nita Rider but like adding <laughs> buying these guys on the cheap while they're while their values suppressed and them coming in and whether it's playing with aho or whether it's playing with Mar- Martin Neckash and Svechnikov next year like all of a sudden they're going to find creative ways to, to get that talent infusion, and that's a very exciting proposition if you're a fan of the Hurricanes that a guy like that could potentially be on your roster next season assuming these rumors have any substance to them.
0: Well, and I talked a little bit earlier about the difference between patience and procrastination, yeah. and I love what Carolina did with their defensemen because everybody thought last year Carolina was going to move one of the right shot guys. you got three right good right shot guys. That's too many. you got to move one of them. They kept them all year, and I mean the best way to get a really good deal is to prove you're willing to walk away, and they proved that, you know what, we can run this as long as we want want. This year I think there's a market that is screaming for right shot defenders even more than a year ago and I they're going to be able to cash somebody in at a very high price.
1: Yeah, I'm very curious to see what they do. I I guess we can get into the Hurricanes right now. Like I lump them and the Avs together as two teams that um you know, this year really took a step um they had they both enjoyed playoff success. Uh, the Hurricanes won two series, made it to the conference final. The Avs were one goal away from doing the same out West. And they're both teams that have a bunch of young pieces. They have kind of their nucleus in place. They have financial flexibility. I don't know how much money they can spend in terms of getting actually fully up to the cap ceiling, but they have room to play with if they get creative. And they have assets, whether it's draft capital, whether it's prospects, to potentially really push their chips in and consolidate their success here. And, and so that's one of the... You know, there's so many different stages for a lot of these organizations. One of them is sort of the start of that rebuild or or tearing down a, a, a group that used to be a contender. Then there's kind of that ascent upwards. And then, arguably, the toughest part here is going from being that like trendy, young, fun team. becoming a contender for the next however many years and i know we just said it runs counterintuitive because we just said with the jets how fleeting it can be and how (laughs) like that step of the development for them was so expedited and and seemingly it lasted for like a year but if you're the hurricanes or the abs this is such a high leverage spot because if you nail this next summer or maybe the next two years this window really sets you up for being good for the next however many years. But if you sort of like sell yourself short and half-ass it and take half measures and sort of get safe guys into the roster, all of a sudden maybe you're limiting your ceiling. So I'm really curious to see how they approach it and how aggressive they are in trying to build off of it and be at legitimate contenders as soon as next season.
0: Well, I, I, I don't think it it's a, it, a, it is at odds with what we said about Winnipeg at all because to me, Winnipeg is an example of a team that had this opportunity and really hamstrung themselves by by not making the most of it, and now Carolina and Colorado are in that position, like you said, where this is the critical moment where you either you fly or you sink, right. and uh, the, the hurricanes the only thing with them is you you wonder how much money they actually have to spend right. and whether it's possible to you know be a sixty five million dollar team or whatever it is and and have that sustained success That's my only caveat with them, but they've been very smart about things, and to me i I like I know there's been discussions about maybe extending Justin Falk, but he's one of those contracts that has a reasonable cap hit but a high actual cash output. Right, and so they have some flexibility. If they trade him, it's going to have a bigger impact than it even appears on the cap. It's going to give the, free up some money to uh, to put everything in place. It, it's going to be a great summer. It's, well, it's going to be a very interesting summer for them, and um, you know. Bringing in you know Niederreiter or some of their recent moves, you have a lot of confidence that they're a team that can assess these things in an intelligent way and make make good bets, whether they those
1: end up paying off or not. See, I would, I would heavily explore trading Justin Fall. Yes, I think. Um, well, he's
0: so valued right now after that playoff run.
1: He is, and the funny thing is, like, I, I don't, I don't know how to phrase this necessarily because I do think like he has a positive value from an on-ice perspective but I do think he is overvalued because like that one skill of his that shot and sort of what he could represent on the power play like their power play was horrendous and probably the reason why they lost so easily to the Bruins in the conference final and it was atrocious all postseason and it's because it was just so catered around just Justin Falk shooting from the point. And I remember like, well, it was it, two or three years ago, he scored a bunch of power play goals. And I feel like that kind of like empowered and emboldened both him and the hurricanes to be like, well, well this is a weapon from the point. And just in today's game, like we just see the bread and butter of the best power plays is those crossing East West passes kind of setting up behind the net and working it out out front. And for these teams, like the, the predators, the hurricanes, the Canadians who had the worst power plays in the league, the common denominator is like, they all feel like they have one defenseman who has a big shot. Or two and, defensemen. Or exactly, and so they're like, well, we need to cater our power play around this, and it just, it's really tough in today's game to have a successful power play going that that route, and so for them, and not to mention sort of the 515 and the foot speed, like, they have the defenseman in place where they can promote some of their younger guys, whether it's calling Jake Bean up from the AHL, whether it's finally giving Hayden Fleury a longer look to internally replace Justin Falk, and then if they could get a uh, Nikolai Ehlers type forward or someone else for him there. Like I just, I'm, I think the ceiling for that team increases so exp- exponentially with a move like that. So that's something I'd be targeting. You know, a guy like Pesci, I like him a lot. Maybe I'd be a bit less reluctant, just because, or a bit more reluctant, just because his contract is so good and he's as much as teams do seem to like him and appreciate that defensive type of defenseman. I still feel like the value he provides them is probably better than what they're going to get in a trade.
0: Yeah, and I think if I if I'm Carolina as tempting as it is to make that deal, both Pesci and Slavin, the, they have cost certainty yeah. for so many years, they're in their primes. Like if you're a budget team, that those guys are worth their weight in gold. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, I agree. And uh, so I would be exploring the Falk thing. So let's we talked about the Jets and we talked about Trubo. Let's kind of pivot and talk about the Rangers um who I feel like we're both going to be uh singing a much Go different tune. <laughs> wow. So they are I mean, first off, can you imagine being a GM of another team now that's been rebuilding for a handful of years and then your owner seeing what Jeff Gordon just accomplished in 18 months or even less and having to explain why you're still in year seven of your your five-year plan of your rebuild? Like, that must be a really tough sell. And I'm happy because it's going to... I hope stuff like this is going to lead to more accountability and sort of some of these questions being asked as opposed to just kind of blindly burying your head in the sand and being like, no, my team has a plan. We're rebuilding. We'll get there eventually. You just got to be patient. You,
0: you don't understand. He, he, he's in New York. Everybody wants to go to New York. I can't bring in the players he brings yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, New York's been really impressive. And, and I I was interested to see what would happen with Gordon because he did so much for those great Boston teams in, in a very brief window, you know, I mean, he was there for a long time as an AGM, but his brief window as interim GM really set up a lot of things that, you know, would eventually lead to the 2011 championship. And uh, they're, they're in good shape. I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about what might happen on their defense. Like mm. there's rumors they might buy out Shat and Kirk. And I, I look at it and I go, really, you're, right. you're going to buy him out over Brendan Smith or Mark Stahl. Like I, I know he's had a bad year, but was it that bad? But yeah, like, they're they're really well set up. Um, Adam Fox, I think, is a... And, and you know what? It, it is one of those things where you have some advantages being the New York Rangers that other teams don't. But they've taken full advantage of it, and uh, they've really constructed... Um, and, and, and aggressive moves, like the anti-Ranta Derek Stepan trade. That was one of those moves that moved him forward. They've um, they've been able to retool very quickly, and I think it puts a lie to the, the idea of these five-year plans where, you know, five years from now, we'll make the first round of the playoffs.
1: Well... It also um, lends great credence to this idea of like the value of asset accumulation. Yeah. Because, and I remember there was, there's was a weird pushback from Rangers fans at the traded line when I, I was noting how for the second straight year they were set to have 10 draft picks and how impressive that was. And there was a lot of like, well, you, you have to, it's one thing to have the picks. It's another thing to nail those draft picks and to get something from them. And it's like, well that's kind of missing the point because you don't necessarily have to actually make those draft picks yourself. You can come to the draft and you can view opportunities to to package a couple of them and trade up if you see a guy you like that's still available. You can wait and use them to get an actual player for your for your main roster as they did with Jacob Truba and with with Adam Fox where they, you know, they gave up a couple of picks for a guy who's probably going to come and sign there anyways eventually. But instead of risking it and letting it play out and seeing what happens and him potentially going somewhere else and liking it enough and staying there long term they had the draft capital where they can afford to package uh, what a second and a third or whatever yeah. it was to, to get a guy like fox and to and to speed up that process and so i think if you're an opposing gm you know i just mentioned how you target you you identify who you want to target and you keep calling them i would just constantly be betting on other gms making mistakes <laughs> that you can cash in on yourself and so keeping cap space open having extra draft picks having financial and asset flexibility all of a sudden when a team does make a mistake you're kind of joining us the spot there waiting to take advantage of it and, and soak up uh some of their good players that they just can't afford anymore and so we constantly keep preaching that and watching the rangers actually execute it has been really a thing to watch and and, and really enjoyable from sort of a smarter analysis perspective well you make
0: a great point about um maintaining flexibility because if if you're going to take advantage of situations, you need assets and you need money and, and those are your two main things. And if you don't have those, you know, an opportunity comes up and you can't do anything about it. So yeah, there's, there's just, there's literally no downside to doing it. And you know what, if you end up making 10 picks, the whole, well, you know, making those, picks correctly and is, is a thing and you, you, there might not be room to develop all those guys well that's why you're making 10 picks because you don't know who's going to pay off you have to go in volume to some point because you're making a bunch of bets hopefully you're making smart ones and if you make 10 of them you have a better chance of three of them paying off than if you make six
1: well and we we talked about how the gms that have been selling their ownership groups on patients in the five-year <laughs> plans are sweating it what about the gms who come out and go like listen what do you expect me to do i can't go out and just acquire uh a, a top pair young defenseman in his prime it's like oh well all of a sudden jacob truba look at that the rangers just swooped in and got him oh i can't i can't acquire you know a, a top center those guys aren't don't grow on trees the blues make a couple backwards moves in 2016 2017 get a bunch of first round picks all of a sudden they go out they they add the luxury to trade for Braden shen they have the picks to go out and and the prospects to go and get ryan o'reilly when he's disgruntled in, in buffalo and all of a sudden as long as you keep your assets and you keep, uh, room open, there's always going to be opportunities to present themselves. And that's what I keep preaching. I, I understand the sort of, um, incentive for GMs, especially with a short leash or feeling like they're on the hot seat to have moves to point to and have guys they can trot out, uh, for press conferences in front of the media and go like, well, this is our new guy. This is what we're doing. But sometimes just waiting and patiently biding your time in this league can be just as important, if not even more beneficial.
0: Well, I think a great example of that last year was Doug Wilson with Eric Carlson, yeah. right? Because they put their chips in the John Tavares basket. It didn't work out, and then he didn't make a panic move. But I, I don't think the Carlson deal came down until September, but he had the ability to make it at that time. And, and the idea, like, Truba's, maybe not the best example just because I, I think there was a, a real perception that he was only going to go some places and not every team could make the trade, but... uh you look at some of the players. Ottawa's moved. Um, Carlson was traded. Stone was traded. These are high-end impact guys. Yeah, you you can bring those players in. There there are opportunities in the market, and, and the way the salary cap works, there's always going to be opportunities in the market. There's always somebody who needs to shed money or shed assets or thinks Ryan O'Reilly can't win a Stanley Cup. Like, yep. <laughs> there's there's always some craziness. The O'Reilly trades maybe the the, the nuttiest of them all because right. St Louis managed St Louis managed to do it without. Not much in the way of real assets. No, like of course. They said, you know, here's our two middle six forwards that uh, are overpaid. We'll, we'll make that the <laughs> the bulk of this trade. I, yeah. And I, I know Buffalo got some futures in there as well. Right. But, but the thing is, you, you can make those deals and uh, it, it it does take hard work. But that, that's why you're getting a, a seven-figure paycheck is because...
1: It's hard work. It's
0: hard work. Yeah. yeah. If anybody could do it, well, you know what? They'd, they'd grab Dimitri and John and they'd <laughs> pay a lot less for their GMs and it wouldn't, wouldn't you know? I I cannot not bring in a top line center as well as the yeah. Next if you want to cut
1: costs and you want
0: only six figure work, we'll, well,
1: we'll take your calls. We'll 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 explore those and opportunities. I, I
0: guarantee you, you know, when I when I come up with excuses for why I didn't acquire a top pairing defenseman, they will be good excuses. Yeah. I'll put a lot of effort into. them.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, we'll put in the work. Well, I guess let's pivot to the sharks then. This is why you're a broadcasting professional, bringing them up, and then I can we can easily segue. Here's my question for you: Why do people still make trades with Doug Wilson? He's like the opposite. If <laughs> If like you want to call certain GMs, if if you see Doug Wilson's phone on your caller ID, like just let it go to voicemail. What I think it was I think it was Travis Yost. who said uh, hide your wallet. Yeah, you know, don't answer yeah. the phone or at least It hide used your to be wallet. Steve Eiserman. Now Doug Wilson's kind of taking that mantle of like
0: just don't trade with him. Well, and and you know Wilson, like not everything Wilson does turns to gold, but consistently in the trade market, like. His, the way he handled Mike Hoffman last year was just insane. I mean, he turned Mikkel Bodker's dead cap hit into a bunch of assets just by playing the middleman.
1: And yeah, he uh, and he knew exactly what he was doing there. Yeah. By the way, like he knew right what away. he was going to get. Like it wasn't like he acquired Hoffman and then he's like, oh, I can trade him. Like he like yeah. before he even had him, he already had a deal lined up. And and basically, I mean, he got he moved out Bodker's contract right, kind of like a no name prospect, a 2018 seventh and a 2026, and he got back. A fourth, a fifth, a second, and another fifth. And, and if you just to, for fielding some calls.
0: Well, yeah, and if you if you were to trade Bodker straight across, yeah. what do you get for him? I don't think you get anything. I think you probably have to pay somebody to, to take, take his it. contract. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was insane.
1: I mean, so what? And and very opportunistically, right? He swooped in, trades for Evander Kane, resigns him long term, trades for Eric Carlson, signs him long term basically used that second-round pick that he got for the Hoffman trade to get Nyquist as a rental for much cheaper than we thought he'd go for. Uh, Middleman Hoffman, he got a second and a fourth for Miracle Mueller before the expansion draft, uh, taking advantage of a Devils team that clearly thought they needed young defensemen. He gets a second and a third for Justin Braun, who has one year left on his deal at 3.8. Everyone knew, listen, all of this is so much about leverage and, and sort of who has it. And the Sharks had no leverage here. Everyone knew that they had to trade Braun and probably even Dylan coming up. And he somehow got legitimate assets for what, a 32-year-old with one year left on his deal who has been rapidly declining over the past couple of seasons. Like, just the fact that he pulled that off, I was like, I was amazed that he got two picks. Like I would have, one, I would have been like, oh, well, at least he cleared cash. Like, that's good.
0: Yeah, yeah, if you can given the bind that San Jose was in, just being able to move the money off the books was advantageous. And I, and I mean, LeBron was a good defenseman at one point, but it has been several years now since he was able to carry the load that you know historically he'd been able to do and uh, you, you like you look back at some of the trades Wilson's made over the years Ryan Clow or Doug Murray for two seconds I think is the the uh, his masterpiece yeah. and, and he kind of made that trade and I went okay well that was great but nobody's gonna do that anymore and you know, you know he does brawn this year exactly, no problem. Yeah. but you know he identified he identified something that teams were overvaluing which was a, a veteran right shot D who could play tough min-
1: or you know reputationally could play yeah, we're tough gonna see minutes. this with I said this summer I think we're already seeing yeah. it. it's like this guy can play tough minutes it's like Literally anyone can play tough minutes. It means <laughs> I, that they're on the ice for tough minutes. I, I can play tough yeah, minutes just, for you. <laughs> send us out there. We can be on the ice for them. It doesn't mean we're going to do well. And a lot of no. these guys don't do well. And I understand it's a tough situation, but it's so bizarre to me when, when it gets cited as a, being a skill can play tough minutes. It's like, what does he do with them? If you're not doing anything, if useful.
0: you've got to, if you're getting outscored three to two, right, you're getting killed in those tough yeah. minutes. So it, it's no good. I mean, I'm gonna get out scored, you know, thirty five to yeah. zero. No, we would do worse. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I mean you you can take somebody who's not a quote unquote tough minutes defenseman, stick him in that role and he can suck just as well as Justin Braun yeah. does. Like it, it it's a it's a weird situation. And I, I think what it is with Braun is he's a guy who historically was able to succeed in that role and for whatever reason I like I don't know what's up with Philadelphia but they think he can still do it even after two or three years of being demonstrably unable to do
1: it well okay let's 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 put a pin in the in the flyers we'll talk more about them in a second I want to finish off on the Sharks here because you know they're clear people are worried about their cap situation and I think Doug Wilson has shown time and time again he'll probably wiggle out of this and and be better off for it I'm really curious to see what the next dominoes are I think you know you and I were discussing before we went on the air, there's very uh, few sort of conventionally bad contracts on this team at the moment. It's a lot of functional guys and a lot of their best players are just making a ton of money. Like I think other than the Martin Jones contract and I don't want to say anything's immovable. they probably just don't want to move him, And they seem like they organizationally like him more than we do. And for whatever reason, and maybe that's kind of a blind spot for them, but like is there a worse contract right now on their books uh, Melker Carlson, one year left at two million dollars. Like, like I think that might be the worst value that they currently have on their roster.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, if Melker Carlson's a UFA today, I bet you somebody pays him two oh, million bucks yeah. without any too much trouble. Uh, yeah, San Jose, San Jose is a great example of of what happens when you have a good GM under a cap system. You have to make tough choices. You just have to make sacrifices, and and that's where the Sharks are because. They've got you know Carlson, Burns, and Vlasic on the back end, and they've got all these guys up front, and they're just in one of those binds where they have to make the team a little bit worse because they they're out of money. But none of the none of the deals that they have on the books are really problems today.
1: I mean, I think a sh- if you were like really just gonna be cutthroat about this and just purely all business, like I, I imagine what you could get for Vlasic right now would heavily trump what he's actually worth as an on-ice player at this point of his career and based on the contract he has as well and how you expect that's going to age uh, considering the term on it. But I just don't see that move happening right now for them unless they get super desperate. So,
0: you know, well, the teams, teams that make these commitments, they do make these commitments because they believe in the players. Right. And so you don't usually see them cut. Cause I mean, I think you can make the same case about Brent Burns. You've yeah. got Carlson under contract now. How much, you know, I I don't think there's a lot of demonstrable. I mean, maybe Burns and Carlson are good enough that it's an exception, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of demonstrable value in having two elite power play defensemen on the same team. Right. You can, yeah. But but again, you know, teams make these commitments because they love the players
1: and they believe in the players, so you don't expect to see the move. Well, and speaking of making the commitments, I like it's funny because Doug Wilson, uh, understandably, is clearly going all in with the with this roster just based yeah. on where they're at and the, and the personnel they have. It's funny because it's like similar to sort of the Dean Lombardi thing we saw and Dean Lombardi won the two Stanley Cups for the Kings. So I think people can't be too upset about it, but it was like very clear as it was happening. And some of the contracts are being signed. It's like, we're going to go for these cups and then afterwards it's someone else's problem. And now it's, you know, it's <laughs> Rob Blake's problem, but it's, that's Banners clearly, fly forever. that's clearly what's going on with Doug Wilson. And, and he does, he only has the one Stanley cup final appearance to show for it here. And, and we'll see, I think heading into next year, assuming nothing crazy happens, they'll once again be one of the favorites out West. If this happens the next couple of years for them, while these guys still are at least in the latter stages of their prime, no one's going to care. But it's pretty clear. Like, what, Douglas in 61, he's been with the, with the Sharks since 2003. Like, he's he doesn't care about what's going to happen <laughs> in 2023 when these guys are in their late 30s. He cares about what's happening right now.
0: Well, and, and it's not even – I can't even really argue with the mindset. Like, obviously, you have to have one eye on the future all the time, but you're trying to win. Yep. that's the objective. And if you if you're in a position where you think your team's good enough and San Jose to me is a lot like St. Louis where they've been so good for so many years, it hasn't paid off in a championship, but it's not one of these teams that's going, you know, oh, well, St. you just got to make the playoffs. And yeah. well, as soon as you make the playoffs, anything can happen. No, they're a legitimately good team. They've been a legitimately good team for a long time. All you can do is support that core and uh, and do the best to win. And, and the one thing about Wilson that I'd add is. It's been very interesting to watch San Jose continue to be competitive as guys like Joe Thornton and that older core age out. Because you know we think about Burns and Vlasic and, and Logan Couture as the sort of the, this older core. You know those guys were the young up and comers, right. and maybe maybe five years from now we'll be talking about San Jose still going for it with their their ancient core and you know Kevin LeBanc and Timo Meyer. They're they're getting up there. They're past their primes now. <laughs> It's uh, it's one of those things where they've been able to keep sustained success through what should have been a rebuild cycle.
1: Well, yeah, they had what the one top ten pick in in this time, and it took out Timo Meyer for yeah, it. Yeah. And obviously, getting a guy like Hurdle and and whatever they got like in the back half of the first round certainly helps a lot. But you know, that, that that's what the next steps here for them are fascinating because I think speaking of like emotionally distancing yourself from the situation, I understand what Pavelski means to that team and organization having been there his entire career and being the center for them and this kind of inspirational playoff run he had where he went through some really brutal injuries and still came back and still bruised for them. But I mean, he's turning 35 and this idea that you're going to pay him market value at this point of his career with the other contracts you have on that team. Like one, there's one thing to go all in with the team you have and it's another to like just a poison pill contract because that's what I think paying him whatever $7 million or whatever he's probably going to command on the open market um, regardless of term even if it was for like two or three years it, it would just be really tough to reconcile at this point considering their needs elsewhere.
0: Well and, and you know you mentioned Dean Lombardi before that was the real issue with LA I mean yeah he, he made some big contract bets to win right now but he also made loyalty contract bets after they won. Yeah. He said you know this guy helped us win we're going to pay him this you can't do that, and Doug Wilson. I mean, I think it's hard to be really cold blooded about this stuff when you're in a GM shoes. He's been pretty good about it, and yeah. and one of the advantages San Jose's had, and we've seen it with Joe Thornton, is they haven't been afraid to sign guys on short term deals, banking right. that they'll be able to re-sign them the next year on a one year deal.
1: Yeah, I mean, what we saw with Patty Marlowe, where yeah. the Leafs clearly valued his sort of like veteran presence and all that, and the Sharks were like, okay, well, you got you guys can have him. It sucks to let him go, but what are we just, you gonna do? We just we can't get... do it, and and I think that what is what's gonna happen here because. Well, and if they want Patty Marlowe back, they can get him back right now. I'm sure. No problem. No, yeah. Easily, I think the Leafs would love that. But, no, it's – it's. I mean, I think – I don't mean – like, Pavelski can still go. He's he's still a good player. I just think, especially if he hits the open market at this point, like, there's going to be someone out there that's going to be willing to pay him more than he's actually worth just because of what he represents and kind of that infusion of a veteran who can still play for you in the top six, right? So, like – it just seems like from the sharks perspective that's going to be someone else's problem and and then they shift their attention to Meyer and LeBan who both need deals and who are both kind of open as RFAs and we'll see if any of these offer sheets come to fruition this summer but Meyer is i think Meyer is like my favorite offer sheet candidate from the perspective of like the most realistic scenario <laughs> where it's like so if you give him cuz they recently released the compensation list right and if it's between 6.7 and 8.4 million It's two firsts, a second, and a third, which seems steep. But But if you're getting a 23-year-old who is already, I'd say he's a star. He's going to be, I think, a superstar based on the way he's trending and if you actually started giving him full-time power play minutes. And if he gets an $8 million average salary, like, I'm curious to see how the Sharks make that Whoa, work.
0: whoa, whoa. That's, that's Kevin Hayes' money. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's not go it's crazy here. True. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it's funny. And I, I'm i really curious to see what happens with offer sheets. Because every year I'm like, oh, you know, yeah. this is the year we could have well, offer sheets.
1: When you live this with Dreisaitl. I mean, like the Oilers just open themselves up for a pre rally. It's like literally like, I don't care what it is. We're going to match it. Yeah. And no one called him on the buff and no one forced them to even sign him for more than he was probably worth. Well, <sighs>
0: i think a lot of the second contract inflation we've seen has been a result of the deal yeah. deal 'cause you you pay twelve and a half million dollars for Connor McDavid, sure whatever. Nobody's going to be able to say, well, Connor Mcdavid got twelve point five clearly i'm worth but Leon Drcidal at the time was coming off I, I think a seventy seven point season on Mcdavid's wing,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, if he's worth eight and a half, what's Vladimir Tarasenko worth what's all all these uh players that are worth now um with offer sheets, I think the shift might be. The, the reason I think there might be a bit of a shift this year, I don't, I'm not betting on it because I never bet on it anymore, because they've so teams have shown themselves so reluctant to engage in offer sheets. But you look at what Jeff Skinner went for, you look at what Kevin Hayes went for. I mean, it, you know, if you can sign a 29 year old for nine million bucks in free agency, or you can sign a 23 year old for eight and a half million as an RFA, right. but give up a pick, I'd much rather have a guy signed from age 23 through age 30 than a guy signed from age 28 through age 35 right. even if I'm giving up the additional assets and especially if I'm saving a little bit of money in the bargain
1: yeah I mean the two firsts are tough but at the same time like I don't know just from a value perspective that that is an interesting proposition I mean we're talking about a guy who's 23 you're right he was 17th in 515 goals and 20th in 515 points and 5th in shot rate at 515 and it's like Just because of how stacked that team was and how many uh, offensive weapons they had, he didn't really get any power play time. So his actual boxcar numbers aren't necessarily as great as his 515 production was. And there's no reason to believe that he can't be a a dominant 515 producer as well with his sort of frame and and skills around the net. So it's, I I don't know, I'm going to be fascinated to see. It does seem like the Sharks are vulnerable because there's only a limit to what they can go to match. And he is a player who still seems like he has room to grow while already having shown enough for us to believe that it's not kind of just like pure speculation. Like you kind of know already that he's going to be very good. It's just a question of, I guess, of how good he's going to be.
0: Well, I, my uh, my colleague at The Athletic, Daniel Nugent Bowman, was talking to Ken Holland about what it would take to trade the number eight pick. And and he, I think he said something along the lines of, you know, a twenty two, a good 22 or 23-year-old NHLer. So you think about it in those terms. And yeah, a lot of times you trade even a good pick for you know, you trade a top 10 pick for an NHL or like that. If you're, a, if you're a middling team or you're a middling to good team or, you know, you're a good to great team, the idea of trading two late first round picks for a guy like Timo Myers, it's an easy decision if you have the cap space. And, and I think this is a, it's a clear area. Somebody at some point is going to exploit it. Who knows if it's this year? But you have these teams with cap space that go out and sign third line guys to four year deals. No, stop doing that. Go get somebody who can really help you. And why not put the screws to your divisional rival? Like if you're in, if you're in the Pacific, yeah, hit San Jose. If you're in the Atlantic, yeah, hit Toronto. Hurt these teams that you have to go through to get to the playoffs anyway. You, there's, it's, it's literally a no lose
1: scenario for you. Two step program that I want to see: one, Colorado Avalanche first sign Mikko Rantanen so they don't expose themselves to <laughs> retribution, and two, sign Timo Meyer to an offer sheet, and that's how they get the Sharks back for that. Landis offside call in game seven. <laughs> because the, the, but think about it this way. From the Avs' perspective, we were, talking, we were talking about Hurricanes and how they want to take this next step to being from good to great. And we like what we saw last year, and they have all these assets. They have the financial flexibility. If you're the Avs, they've got the fourth and 16th overall pick this year. So you're already basically loading up your prospect pipeline. So future picks for you and assuming you're going to be as good as you think you are don't necessarily mean that much to you. You have the cap space. And imagine just adding a guy like Timo Meyer to the ranks to play with the McKinnons, the Landiscovs, Randons of the World. Like something like that. It's it's it seems ambitious because I just don't think it's gonna happen and with especially with conference rivals. But like this seems like it's the perfect spot for a team to just go like, you know what? Screw you, we're gonna do this.
0: No, you know you're you're thinking about this wrong dimitri the The correct approach is the flyers' approach where you bring in Justin Braun and Matt Niskanen and trade for the rights to Kevin Hayes. That's the way it's done. That's the way things are done at the big boys at the National Hockey League. <laughs> it's yeah. You know what? I I understand about retribution. I understand not wanting to expose your own RFAs to that. It's a legitimate concern, but if you've got things taken care of in-house, and especially if you're hitting a team that's vulnerable, this is a much better use of your cap space than signing middle tier or even upper tier free agents given the age um, considerations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. If you you handle your business in-house, you don't have anything to worry about with the retribution thing, really. Um, Okay. Let's end with the Flyers then, because they've been very active. Yes. It's old school Paul Holmgren fires where they, <laughs> Bias somehow, they somehow took on 15 million extra dollars of cap space for next year before even knowing what <laughs> next year's cap is. I understand they had the room to do so, but it's pretty funny to think about that. We don't even know what next year's cap is going to be. And we're still what 12 days or 11 days away from free agency. The draft hasn't even happened yet. And they're just like, no, <laughs> we're going all in. We're making stuff happen. And on the one hand, the, You know, we talk about the Sharks going all in. Considering the ages of Giroud, Voracek, some of their forwards, I understand the idea behind it. I just think the execution of the actual players that they got in, I think it's really tough to make the argument that the Flyers are significantly better now than they were two weeks ago, considering that they just took on 15 extra million dollars of cap liability.
0: Yeah, they're not nearly improved enough for no. the money they spent. And and the point about where the cap is going to be is a great one because if it comes in at 81 5 or something like that, all of a sudden there's going to be new opportunities in the market. And because you spent that $15 million in cap space you had, you're no longer in a position to take advantage of them. It's... Uh it's baffling, and it's especially baffling when you look at how the Flyers are structured. Like Ron Hextall was super. Pa- it's it's crazy to think about Ron Hextall when you think of him as a player, you know, holding back the crazies in Philly's front office. But going, no, about, no, no, be patient. Think about be patient. how
1: quickly his patience was undone here.
0: <laughs> yes, it's it's crazy, and and you look at their D, like you you know you Provorov and and Sanheim, they've got a good young and defense. Grosse Bear, yeah, Sean Couturier is in the prime yep. of his career. Like this is a good team. It's a team that should be good for a long time. And I mean, I, like I'm, I'm pro Matt Niskanen, but that's too much money. And you retained on Radko Gudas, and you know you're replacing him with Justin Braun. Like this is this is not a recipe for success. No. It's right. uh, I I have a little bit more time for Kevin Hayes. I,
1: I mean, no, it, he makes their team better certainly, yeah. especially down the middle. You know, I think they're still unsure of what Nolan Patrick really is. Yeah. They don't want to play Giroux in the middle. They want to play him on Couturier's wing mostly, and it, may, it makes sense that. Kevin Hayes is kind of your prototypical playmaking, second-line, center. It's similar to what Winnipeg Winnipeg wanted to do last year at the deadline to bring him in and surround some of their shooters with his passing. I get it. But the investment and sort of the opportunity cost of what else you could have done is upsetting, I guess, considering the pieces in place give, gave them so much upside considering how patiently they were reloading, and then now this is all they have to show for it. Well, and, and you know what? If you have $15 million
0: in cap space... Spending seven million bucks on Kevin Hayes, it's it's defensible because he's a guy who can legitimately make a difference in the present. Yes, you're overpaying, but if you're going to win in the future, you want to win today. That's the best way to win tomorrow is to win today. But if you're also spending the eight million on Braun and Niskin, and it done, then, then it becomes so much so so much more difficult because you can't just say, well, we have the cap space to work with because you've used it all now, yep. and. uh yeah, Hayes alone I would have been okay with, but but the other deals they made, it, it really undermines them.
1: Okay, we'll sign off with this. Here's a, your question of the day. How many, and I love asking hockey people this, and it's going to be my next thing for the summer. How many teams this summer are going to make regrettable mistakes thinking they're the next St. Louis Blues? Because oh. we always talk about this being a copycat league, and we've already seen teams come out and go, you look at the Blues. They, they were, were in last place. You look, they were in last place. You never know. This is a league full of parody, You never know. And I think there's going to be so many GMs, so many owners that talk themselves into them being the next team that just sticks around long enough. They can get over the hump and they're going to double down on that. And I'm very curious. I, I don't know who it's going to be. It might be the Flyers with the, the way they've approached this summer. It might be the Minnesota wild. I, I don't know who it's going to be, but there's going to be teams that set themselves back for however many years, just because they think they're the next St. Louis blues. Well,
0: and if, if you're an NHL GM, I get saying it. You know what? Oh, look, anything can happen. Buy tickets. Yeah, Buy tickets. Of course. But if you believe it, it goes back to what we were talking about with um, Ehlers and Kyle Connor. You know how there's that true underlying value, and then there's the ups and the downs. And you don't want to sell a guy in a down point. You don't want to buy a guy at an up point you want to buy him at true value or or lower to me you look at st louis and how bad they were at the start of the year st louis's true value was never last place team in the league they were way underachieving you know and and, uh so the fact that they you came back win the stanley cup if you're edmonton if you're vancouver it doesn't mean anything to you you're not st louis you are legitimately a bad team st louis never was so it's uh but yeah gms are going to make big mistakes i mean it's the nature of free agency and and especially uh the teams that are bad are tend to be the teams that make the mistakes well, anyway
1: the blues are a team if you look at their skater group that patiently built up this group that was all pretty much in their prime and they just needed a coach who knew what he was doing and a goalie who could make a save and yeah. all of a sudden that was a difference for them it wasn't size and grittiness and hanging around for long enough
0: well I, i've said this a few times but when Chicago and LA were two really awesome teams, Chicago didn't beat LA by outgridding and being heavier and bigger than LA and LA never beat Chicago by being smaller and faster and sneakier than, than Chicago. LA beat Chicago by being L- LA and Chicago beat LA by being Chicago. Yep. So don't go try and be St. Louis, be whoever you are, right? Beat them with, with the strengths you have. You don't have to be, you don't have to be big and gritty to beat a gritty team. You don't have to be small and fast to beat a small and, to beat a small and fast team you just have to be good get get good players and and that's something that st louis that's the real lesson of st louis they got a lot of good players do that
1: yeah all right uh jonathan let's get out of here plug some stuff what uh what are you what are you working on this weekend i know it's a busy time for you it here. is that's a it.
0: busy busy time the draft uh, who knows
1: <laughs> i'll be
0: responding to news i'm gonna be doing a great big post-mortem on Ooh. the 2019 draft should come out Hopefully Monday we'll see what it's like. It's going to be long and hopefully add some insight. I've got some really good quotes already. Should be a fun piece.
1: Nice. Well, though I think the Oilers are going to be busy. I think they're going to be trying to do something, so I'm looking forward to it's it. It's going to be an interesting weekend. All right, man. Well, I'm glad we finally got to do this in person and hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. Definitely. Before we get out of here, I just wanted to quickly give everyone uh a big thank you for making this amazing uh 300 episodes of the Hockey PTO cast feed possible. It's Crazy to think about. It's so so many hours of uh, myself and countless others talking about uh, a game, but the fact that you all show so much support and love to it is incredible and keeps the show going and makes me look forward to the future and to hopefully uh, 300 more or or many even more after that, assuming uh, we can still keep this going. So, for those of you that um, have went out of your way to give the show love and support. I thank you for those of you that haven't yet uh done so please consider taking a minute to go on itunes and leave the podcast the rating and review uh spread the word go share it on, on social media do whatever you can because all of that goes obviously a long way to ensuring that the bills are paid and that this podcast remains on the air so with that said um you know hopefully you guys enjoy these two shows that we released back to back there's the mock draft episode 300 with Cam Robinson and Ufe Bodin. just did this kind of NHL uh, bounce around uh, hot topics with Jonathan Willis and we'll see I think with so many people here in Vancouver for this weekend I'm going to try to do a couple more uh, we're going to certainly do a draft recap and a draft weekend recap which might include some uh, trade analysis hopefully if that if that happens over the next couple of days and then Next week, we'll be uh, gearing up for the free agency period, and we'll be doing some previews there as well. And then we're going to transition to the off season, but don't worry. The PDO cast is going to keep going. It's going to keep popping up with new episodes on your feed throughout the off season. maybe in July and August. It'll be more like once a week or once every two weeks, but we're not going anywhere. We're going to keep the good times going. And so I'm looking forward to all that. So thanks for listening. Enjoy uh your weekend, enjoy the draft weekend. Hopefully your team gets the players you want and makes some smart moves, and we will be back soon. So with that said, uh let's play that outro music. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash